Dad. Yeah. What does it mean when they say end end of days in in like movies or something? How would the world end? Hey, you guys. What? Since we recently celebrated your seventh birthday, and now you're seven-year-olds. The show's going to enter a new stage of maturity, and I want to talk about birthdays and end of days for this episode. And we're going to look at beginnings of life and ending of life in the big picture and the little picture. What do you think? What do you mean by big picture? Well, like the ending of the world, because you guys have asked how might the world end? Is the world going to go on forever? Now we're going to talk to people about the story of their birth. Birthdays, and when they thought. It was going to be their end. Yep. Before we get to the part about birthdays, I want to skip straight to the end. Dad, we haven't even introduced the show yet. Oh, okay. You go ahead. You do it. You're listening to Rome Scold, and this is our episode about beginnings and endings. Well done. I think our old friend storyteller Ramblin' Jack Elliot says it best. My stories have a beginning and a middle, but they don't have any end. They just keep on rambling. Oh, eventually you might run out of food, you might run out of water, you might run out of air, you might run out of time, or the door might fall off. You know, eventually the story will come to an end by some une- unexpected force of nature, maybe a tidal wave or an earthquake, and the story ends. One of the things that we stumbled across at the library was pandemic, a disease so virulent and deadly that it would wipe out the population, a pandemic. To find out more about this, we paid a visit to our dear friend, Kevin Craddock. He is an epidemiologist. He offered us the... And he's our godfather. Yes, he is also our godfather. He's your godfather. He offered us the following... He he offered us the following clarification. Let me try that again. He offered us the following clarification. Do you have any idea what I'm doing? That really, really sounds like a person in Zootopia. (laughs) Well, I think the person in Zootopia is probably imitating a character in a movie that you probably won't see for a while. What was it called? The Godfather. (laughs) These girls of mine, they're such an easy audience. I think it means you're a person who studies sicknesses. That's correct. Epidemiologists study the burden or the impact of disease across an entire population, and it's usually focused on communicable diseases. And what happens in uh, an epidemic is there are so many people with a particular illness or disease, they infect so many other people, it overloads a community. What drew me to public health is I was actually working in the private sector in construction in Africa and just became interested in malaria and then I got malaria. Being in the hospital, a woman's child died in her arms in the, the hospital room I was in in the middle of the night and two other kids died because they couldn't beat the fever. They were giving the kids larium, but it was too late. The infection had gotten so bad. It's especially relevant now because what you're seeing is re-emergence of diseases that had previously either not existed or had been eradicated in, in tropical areas. Right now you see Hawaii is seeing a spike in dengue fever. And if you really wanted to boil this down to one particular topic, the mosquito is, is the death star of the human race. 
The mosquito. The Death Star. Because the Death Star is really powerful because it shoots laser rays at ships and can destroy planets and ships. Huh. Death so Star. Why the mosquito? Oh, because when they sucked your blood, they replaced it with something itchy, and they could someone else could have had that disease, and the stuff that they put in you that makes it itchy could have that blood in it. Yeah, or the bacteria or a virus. It's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. Teeny mosquito can cause a whole country. Potentially. I mean, you see this tiny little thing that you need a, a $10,000 electron microscope to see a tiny little virus that can kill millions of people. That's fascinating. The, the best uh, explanation is a, it's a little guy that packs a big punch. Why? Because it occurs at the cellular level, it replicates really quickly, and the, the virulence of a particular virus is related to how the infected animal, human or not, uh, reacts to having that introduced to their body's ecosystem. An epidemic is basically a severe acute burden of illness in a particular community over a very specific set of time. The next wave of that as a pandemic kind of spreads globally. With highly virulent diseases, they kill themselves out, they kill their hosts fast, so you don't see epidemics of rabies, because if you get rabies, you're gone in three days. The onset is so quick and so alarming that the the patient or the infected person will die and then people will stay away from it. But you can tell in animals that that animal becomes aggressive. The virus has gotten smart enough over time to want to go bite and infect people and carry on. And then you kind of get into some viruses and diseases that have that R value or the R not or the re- reproductive rate where they infect 1.5 people for every case. And those, you're, we're on the losing end of them, but we don't spend a lot of time investigating and doing interventions on them because through therapy and social distancing and different types of interventions that are less specific than getting everyone to go to a high school auditorium and get a new vaccine, um, the diseases that have the R, R factor that are greater than three or four, measles, for instance, is one of the highest. If you have measles in a community and there's the low vaccination rate, it's about 30. So one person will infect 30 people. Is what we're doing worth it? I mean, we're fighting something that's really hard to fight because it's a huge population. If there is a pandemic of any variety, again, H1N1 in 2009 was by definition a pandemic, but it didn't cause economic meltdown. It didn't cause countries to you know, send their tanks to the borders and revert to national currencies and break down the entire world's economy. Homo sapiens, if you go back to Lucy, there's a resiliency built in there. It could cause a lot of social disruption that could take a generation to kind of figure out and then reassemble society. But there's never been a pandemic that wiped out 80% of the population, 10 to 30%, but never so overwhelming that we're all gone. So why is it always listed as one of the top five things that could cause the end of days? Because it's good fodder for imagination. Um, I think the chemical weapons and biological weapons, which are a byproduct of modern medicine, those are the things that could really provide a knockout punch. You know, you go back and you you talk to some people who were on the front lines of AIDS in the early 80s. It was incredibly scary. One of the things that I don't think will necessarily become a pandemic is staph infections in healthcare settings. They're skyrocketing. We're losing so much ground on antibiotics. One of their challenges is going to be 
how do we fight bacterial diseases that have morphed so significantly when there hasn't been a, a pharmaceutical economy. The reason why a lot of the antibiotics are useless now is because the bacteria have been so pre-exposed, amoxicillin is almost useless. 50 years ago, you could take it for anything, but then we started putting it in our feed for our cattle. It basically took amoxicillin out of the game. So the good news is, in my humble opinion, is I don't think a pandemic is going to be the primary cause for the world to end. I think it could trigger a very serious uh, economic meltdown because trade will have to stop. People will have to start traveling. Tourism economies will be devastated. Uh, a lot of people out of work, taking care of people. It, it, very, very big slowdown. What you're going to see is heavy, heavy government intervention if a, if a pandemic actually is sustained over months and months. But with all the other things threatening the earth and the human race right now, I think that we could survive a pandemic and, and rebound from it. So viruses need their hosts to live, mm -hmm. but they only need them to live long enough to pass the virus on to the next person. Correct. So if some genetic mutation happened that it had a high morbidity and a high communicability, but it took three months and that caused it to go around the world, has that ever happened to a population? Obviously it hasn't happened to humans or we wouldn't be here. So you're talking about the perfect virus there. It has a, it's, it's very lethal but it incubates long enough and the person could still be infectious. So that's kind of like the opposite of rabies, which kills you right away, or uh, hemorrhagic fever like Marburg or Ebola virus disease. If you had something with an R-naught of 10 and a high level of morbidity and mortality, but it wouldn't present right away, that would be the perfect disease. And there are some diseases that, that meet that criterion. Um, I mean, some people could probably argue that malaria has just been the longest ongoing pandemic. Uh, in human history, at least malaria uh, only exists in tropical areas. So if you really want to be concerned about a, a pandemic, influenza is the most concerning and potentially problematic pandemic that we could see again in our lifetime. Mortality, if it's 5%, still taking 5% of people out of a population, that, that gets the lion's share of the worry. One it's not, not going to kill the whole population, though. So. The interesting thing about flu virus is that every year it's, it changes. That's why there's a new vaccine every year that drifts. So it's, it's genetic drift. So it drifts a little bit. It changes. But then you have those years. You have your 2009s. You have your 1918. And it goes through what's called genetic shift, where you might have an entire two generations of population that have never experienced or been around a flu seeing this radically deviated flu virus. Okay, so there's drift and there's shift. Drift is something we can deal with. Shift might be a little tougher. But at least as far as we understand pandemics, it's unlikely to be a pandemic that brings about our end of days. What else? How do you think the world might end someday? Um, there could be a humongous earthquake and it could explode. Earthquake. Um, what else? Um, volcano. A tsunami would just wash away all the towns, but that wouldn't make the Earth end. How did the dinosaurs die? Um. That was the end of days for the dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, well, there was a giant asteroid that hit the Earth a long time ago, and that was the end for dinosaurs. 
Yeah, I was recently reading that asteroid is what you call it when it's in space, but meteor is what you call it when it enters the Earth's atmosphere, so it changes its name. Isn't that weird? My first memory is actually my father picking me up and holding me up to his telescope and saying, that's Halley's Comet. This is the last time I'll see it and probably the last time you'll see it. That, that kind of stuck with me, and ever since then, um, I've always been fascinated by astronomy. Uh, my name is Dr. Joseph Macero. I'm a scientist at the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. I study asteroids and comets using the NEOWISE spacecraft. And so we're looking for uh, new asteroids that come close to the Earth. We've discovered around 150 to 200 near-Earth objects. So these are objects that approach within 1.3 Earth-Sun distances from the Sun. The distance from the Earth to the Sun, we call that 1 AU, 1 astronomical unit. And so any object that gets within 1.3 AU of the Sun, these are what we call the near-Earth objects. They get near the Earth's orbit. Currently, there are about 10,000 known of all sizes. Now, not all of them are big. Some of them are very small. And we have asteroids that fly by all the time that are no bigger than this table. Um, we can see them from the ground, but they don't really pose a big threat. Now, the big ones, the things the size, you know, a kilometer across, 10 kilometers across, the size of, you know, a small village, those are the big problems, right? The one that killed the dinosaurs, that was about six miles, about 10 kilometers across, that hit just off the coast of Mexico and resulted in a major global catastrophe. Those are the ones we really want to pay attention to. Anything bigger than about a kilometer, about half a mile across, would have serious global consequences. So it would take an asteroid a mile wide to do the kind of damage that did, was done to the dinosaurs. But does that completely set your mind at ease about asteroids? No. Asteroids hitting the Earth? No. Because it's kind of big. But what about an asteroid that's just a quarter mile in diameter? Can asteroids go like straight through your house? Yeah. They are moving really fast. What about fabric like plastic? Definitely through fabric and plastic. They can go through buildings, cement, parking Cement? Parking structures, yeah, they're moving. They just shatter it. If they're big enough, they cause a, a whole disturbance. In Russia, there was one a couple years ago that almost hit the ground. It kind of exploded before the main part of it hit the ground, but it was like a bomb going off in the sky. And it shattered a lot of glass, and a lot of people were injured. What about the other 6% or 10% of those objects? And what are their estimation methods? They'll hit in like... Each one might hit in 2,000 years or something. It could be 2,000 years, or it could be tomorrow, right? Probably not tomorrow. That kind of freaks me out when you say tomorrow. If an object that big were headed towards the Earth, they would see it, and there would probably be some notice, some, some time. What we could do during that time is the question. Go to a different country. I don't know. The whole world could be affected by one that big. As part of the Neowise mission, we were able to confirm that as a society, we have discovered over 90% of those objects, of the really dangerous ones. And so by comparing the estimated number of objects to the actual number that we've observed, we can show that we have about 94% of the big ones in the bag. And that's great. These objects, we know enough about their orbits around the sun to be certain they will not hit the Earth in the next 100 to 200 years. And actually, when you get out past that, it becomes more difficult. You know, a single object orbiting a single star is very easy to predict, but when you get multiple objects, it's a chaotic system. 
And so we have supercomputers churning away, trying to predict where these things will be, but that only gets us about a couple hundred years out for the things that come real close to Earth. And then you have to keep watching them. And so your job is never really done, but we've been able to give an all clear for the next hundred years of the you know global catastrophe ones. Which is good news, right? And now, so now our next step is to go down a step size. So now we're talking about the things, you know, about 300, 400 feet across, 140 meters, 100 meters. Um, those are the objects that will have serious regional damages. So it won't cause a global nuclear winter style event, but it will be massively bad, not just for the city or the state it lands on, but the continent it lands on will have serious ramifications. And so that's the next hurdle that the NEO community is trying to cross. Now part of the problem is that as you get smaller, you can really only detect them with our telescopes when they're within the proximity of the Earth. So there's actually a task force. In the past couple years, something called the Planetary Defense Conference has been uh, conducted, and it's trying to get together international teams of people who might be involved in how you respond to an object that would hit the Earth. So wait, how does this actually work? And how do we find the asteroids if you can't even see them? The way that asteroid discovery happens is discovery surveys like ours, we send them all to a central clearinghouse. This is the Minor Planet Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and it is a sanctioned body by the International Astronomical Union. So it's the worldwide repository for positions of asteroids. And they say, hmm, this is an interesting orbit. What you have to figure out is how long do you have? Find an object and it's two or three days out from hitting us? You may not want to try and blow it up, but you may want to go there and gently nudge the asteroid. Because you don't need to destroy the thing. You just need it to miss the Earth. And so a lot, there's a lot of uh, studies currently going on right now about how you would deflect an asteroid, how you would move it very subtly off its orbit so instead of being a hit, it's a near miss. Because that's all we want, is it not to hit. So these asteroids are in the orbit around the sun, just like the Earth is. But they might be going the opposite direction, they might be coming in from the side. How do you move an asteroid? What? How do you move an asteroid off of its orbit? One method for deflecting an asteroid would be to run something into it. To launch a spacecraft that's, you know, a 10-foot wide ball of copper, and you just move it real fast and you slam into it, and you get something really dense, so like basically you just shoot it with a bullet, and you just try and nudge it a little bit. You have to make sure you hit it right on. If you hit slightly off, maybe you'll just spin it instead of moving it. So one idea that's currently being researched that looks like it might have uh, some interesting applications is a gravity tractor. Instead of slamming a giant mass into the asteroid, what if you just took it and positioned it next to the asteroid? Now everything has gravity, and so the rock will tug on your mass, the mass will tug on the rock, and over time, you can slowly move the asteroid's orbit with gravity. Now you could all imagine, while well, you just land on it, strap a rocket to it, and fire the rocket, but we don't know what these things are made of often. We don't know how coherent their surfaces are. Are they a pile of sand? Are they a single monolithic rock? Whereas with the gravity tractor, you just need to know where it is and how heavy it's going to be, and physics does the rest for you. In terms of practical applications, there is a NASA mission that is being proposed right now that would go to an asteroid and pick a boulder up off of it, and then fly next to the asteroid with that boulder and use that to try and slightly deflect the um, object. So you're not exactly setting our minds completely at ease. But with the catastrophic, giant, mile-wide asteroids you're talking is if we've identified about 90% of them. Um, 94. 
94. And then with the smaller asteroids, we don't really have a number. So are you worried about this? He just said you shouldn't be worried. He did, I know, but, I, but I'm asking him. Are you? There's one kind of worry. There's like the worried right now, like I'm gonna, oh shoot, I'm gonna miss this bus, worry, or, or oh my God, my arm's on fire kind of worry. Or there's like in the back of your brain worry, like maybe we should be doing something as a society about this in addition to what's already being done. You're talking about back of the brain. Yes, <laughs> I'm more talking about back of the brain worry. Um, then I'm like, I'm Exactly. Are you worried, Joe? Impacts in the solar system are inevitable, but inevitable on the million-year timescales. And so we can't predict things out that far in advance, and I don't know if it would do us much good. We don't know what civilization will look like in a million years. We don't know if we won't have screwed up the climate so much that we're not here in a million years. Now, now that we've shown that we can't see a dinosaur-style impact coming anytime soon, that's good. I think we can not worry about those anymore. There will always be small things, right? The object that came in over Chelyabinsk, Russia, uh, just about three years ago. That was small. That was um, 40, 50 feet across. Very hard to see. You don't get these often in the surveys because they're so small, you only see them when they're right next to you. And so there are a large number of those wandering around, but they don't pose a global catastrophe level hazard. It's, it's an interesting conundrum, right? The asteroid problem is a low probability event with a high consequence. And that's something that humans are very bad at understanding, right? We don't really appreciate these kind of events. On the other side of that coin, with the asteroid stuff, it's a problem we can solve. We actually have an avenue where we can fix this. Um, not too different from eradicating polio. You know, eradicating smallpox. You can do that. If you put, your, put the grunt work in and you get everything done, you can close out one chapter of a hazard. I think right now, the biggest threat present to us is in fact climate change. Um, and not just the changing climate, but the stress it's going to put on our society. You know, we see the migrant crisis in Europe right now with the Syrian migrants moving through Europe. That's a huge stress on the fabric of the EU. And that's one country, one war. What happens when large portions of India are flooded, when Indonesia is flooded, when the Chinese cities, when the East Coast is flooded, when you have two billion people having to move. So that's what I see as the biggest problem that the world has to address. But that's a very big problem and it doesn't have an easy solution. So that's why, you know, I still think it's important to close out the easy things while we can, while at the same time, you know, not forgetting that we have these big things to worry about. Go for it. Could the world end with, like, a giant tornado out of space? Could that happen? Could the world end with a giant tornado from outer space? Um, I don't think so. I don't think we need to worry about that. Tornadoes, while they're very dangerous, they're usually pretty short-lived, and even the big ones are only about a mile, maybe a mile and a half wide, so I think we're okay. We are talking with Matt Zafino. He is the Pacific Northwest's favorite meteorologist, weatherman. Remember his name, Zafino. It's going to come up later. We invited him over for a beer and to talk to the girls about the end of days. 
My birthday is April 5th. April 5th is also a big day in Portland weather history because back in, I think, 1972, on April 5th, was probably the worst tornado to ever hit Portland. I think it hit a school, but then it didn't do a lot of damage in Portland, but it crossed the Columbia River. So a tornado just ripped across the river, went into Vancouver, and took out the wall of a bowling alley. You spend so much time outside, and you're always thinking about the climate and the weather. Yeah. Do you see any changes? What, what's happening to the world right now? I do see changes, and what's interesting to me are all of the other people that notice changes. So you talk to people who grow wine grapes or people, wheat farmers in Oregon or salmon fishermen along the coast, and they've all noticed changes over the last 10 to 20 years. And the data on climate change is conclusive. I mean, it's happening. We are having an impact on our climate through the burning of fossil fuels. Now, exactly how that plays out is still remains to be seen in a lot of areas. And in some places, it might be good. If you're a wheat farmer in Siberia and the climate's getting warmer, well, that might be good for you. If you have property in Miami, then that's not so good. Saltwater intrusion is a big threat. It's happening, and they're already taking steps to try to correct it. As sea level goes up, places that are near sea level are getting flooded. You know, you get another Hurricane Katrina, which is totally possible. That could happen this year, next year, five, ten years from now. Um, New Orleans could be in some serious trouble of even, you know, existing. And that's been talked about for a long time. More than it was, say, 20 years ago? Yeah, because the sea levels keep going up. And as the oceans warm, here's the other component to that, is as the oceans warm, there's something called thermal expansion. And warmer water takes up more space than colder water. So simply by warming the oceans, that's a lot of water that's expanding, and it makes sea level go up. That and the ice melt off of Antarctica and Greenland are, are really the two things that are, that are really being looked at strongly right now. How can you tell if it's going to be sunny or uh, shady or uh, foggy or stuff like that? How do we forecast the weather? So the first thing you want to do is you want to look outside and see what it's doing right now. So that's an observation. One of the coolest things that we use for that are actually weather balloons. And it's old technology, but it's a big old balloon, and it's got a box attached to it. And the box has a thermometer and a barometer to measure pressure. And we can track it because it's got a radio transmitter so we can tell how fast the wind is blowing. And so as the balloon goes up, we get this information vertically. And the pressure gets lower and lower outside the balloon. So the balloon gets bigger and bigger. And eventually it pops. But before it pops, it's about the size of a school bus. And how's it get down? Does it have a parachute? It does. The balloon eventually does pop. And there's a little plastic parachute. By that point... The box has done its job. It took the measurements as it went up. The box falls down to the ground, and occasionally people find them, and people are curious, so they open the box up. And in the box, there's a self-addressed stamped bag. (laughs) And you put the box with the measuring instruments in the bag and just throw it in the mail, and they get reused and recycled and fixed and repurposed. Wow, that's pretty cool. And this happens all around the world at the same time because we need all of those measurements to be calibrated and happen at the same time. Data from the box gets immediately fed into these supercomputers that use the equations of motion to, to produce the forecast maps.
Is weather more extreme now than it was? Has storm severity increased? Yes, um, there are more extremes, and anecdotally, you can see it. We had record rainfall in the month of December. There's still natural variability in weather, so it's, it still gets cold in the north in the wintertime when the sun isn't shining up there. We still get cold air masses, but how they move and where they go, how long they last, that's all in flux. So I have these friends, uh, Ed and Victoria. Girls, you tell, tell Matt about Ed and Victoria. They're really funny and they're not serious. And they like to go mushroom hunting and their dogs are really cute. Mm. So they have a, an expression, whenever anything about the world doesn't go as they expect, they go, Safino! <laughs> wow. Wow, I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> Uh-huh. And even if they haven't even checked the weather cast, if the weather's not to their liking, they curse your name. They blame me, huh? Yeah. You must be that for a lot of people. Uh, that's a heavy responsibility. <laughs> uh, what are their names again? Ed and Victoria Haynes. Ed and Victoria, sorry about that. Um, when things don't go your way, I do my best. Maybe you should watch more often. <laughs> So many ways that the world might end, they say. It's strange because the world is so big, but really what freaks you out is when you start to think about how your life might end. Every once in a while I think about the end because I'm somewhere in the blur of the middle. Um, I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk to some people who had come face to face with their own personal demise. It happens to everybody, almost everybody. But for the most part, at some point you have a moment to contemplate your end. It uh, rained every day. It rained like you wouldn't believe how it rained. You couldn't even see across, you know, uh, people say you couldn't even see across the street it was raining so hard. It did it almost every day. They had huge ditches that just filled up with water almost instantly every day. That's Baza, Barry Crawford. He was in active service in Vietnam. Now he's an artist and a performer. And we sat down with him for a very surreal dinner in a Thai restaurant. You might be able to hear Frank Sinatra crooning away in the background. I was married, and so I could only do nine months in Vietnam. Two months before I went to Vietnam, my daughter was born. I went to Vietnam for nine months, and I got back and she was walking and talking. It was amazing. It was like a miracle, you know. She was so cute. She had hair like Bob Dylan, you know, it was really funny. She had like this blonde, curly thing. Had you been receiving pictures when you Oh, were... yeah. I got the baby in the dress sitting on a towel or whatever people used to have all the time. Did it feel like you were missing out on a lot? Did you, or were you too busy being yeah, a soldier? Yeah, or to... too busy, too busy. You go 13-hour days... You work from sunup to sundown. We had bunker duty, which is like once a month you go out in this bunker right next to uh, the fence. And so they just sit out there and shoot at you. What, the, what was the we fence? Don't, we didn't see them. Well, there were ten fences. There's big barbed wire, like ten feet high, and then there were rolls and rolls of concertina wires out to the road. Out across the road, there's a uh, rubber plantation, rubber trees, and they would uh, sit out there and shoot at you at night. And there's no way to... It's so dark there. It's incredible day dark. I've never seen a darker place in my life. And uh, there's nothing they can do about it. 
they can't send patrols out there because they would just get killed easily at night. You can't see anything out there. So they just let them shoot us. <laughs> shoot at us. Did you ever get hit? I know. I felt a bullet go by my head. I could hear it singing in the night. Like, I went out to urinate. That's what happened. And that's when they take a shot at you. Usually, you go to work, you go take a shower, you eat, you go to you write a letter and go to bed. That's it. It goes on for nine months. I, I was sitting there writing a letter, and I hear this whistling noise coming into the camp instead of out. It's out. It's, it's us shooting at them. If it's coming in, it's them shooting at us. So I ran down the whole length of the tent, got my rifle for some reason. didn't have any bullets in it. He, in his night clothes, with his rifle, dove into a puddle in the pitch black. And in this moment, he thought that his life was ending. It's like it's never going to stop. And you don't hear anything else. You hear helicopters. Nobody, we're not shooting at who's ever mortaring us. For like a half an hour, it's just like, is the next one going to land on me, is what you think. In the darkness. Yeah. Pitch, 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 pitch dark. dark. Yeah. I was scared to death. I thought I was going to die. I really did. The next morning, they started again. And it was light. It was light then. When the siege was over, do you just crawl out of the puddle? and <laughs> What yeah. happens when it's over? How do you know that it's over? You don't hear any more whistling. It just sounds like they stopped. There's people running all over the place, like telling I mean, it's chaos. I think it's over. No, 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 keep down. No, it's over. Like You don't know. I was older than than a lot of these these guys were. I wasn't drafted. I volunteered because I didn't know what else I was going to do in my life. So I thought oh, I'll go in the army for a while and see if I can find something to do. The breakdown of society and of many societies, like brotherhoods and family groups within the military, seems to be a theme in Vietnam, as opposed to other war eras where there's a everybody's on your side as a soldier. Kind of thing, yeah. There's Did nothing like that. I, particularly I'm getting, coming back, when we got back, came from the airplane to the Oakland terminal, and there are hundreds of people out there protesting the war, yelling off everything you could think about, you know, child killers and all that kind of stuff at us. We thought, oh my God, is this how it really is? Because we didn't know. We were in Vietnam. We didn't know anything that, like that was going on. I wrote a lot of anti-war songs after I got back. But the ones I wrote in Vietnam weren't, weren't anti-war songs. They were more like I'm missing you type songs. Because mm -hmm. I hadn't been married very long. Do you think there will always be war? It sure looks like it. I don't know. We're animals. <laughs> you know? It's what animals do. They fight each other. You know, they've got territory. and uh, Somebody comes into your territory, you don't want them there. Must get rid of them. The real essence of it is that you feel like you're going to be killed at any second. That's the tension of, of being there. It's like because of that kind of war, they, it comes out of nowhere. You don't expect it. You just can't trade for that kind of stuff. You're in somebody else's yard, and they know every inch of it. You don't know it. You're just going out there going, oh, man, I hope I don't get killed. I'll do anything to, to get out of this situation. Can you remember any moments of trying to explain to her daughter when she was five or six or seven what it is that you had been through when she I was... I don't think it ever came up. It was, it was all forgotten, pretty much. 
I had a father-in-law that was in World War II. He would not talk about anything that happened. It was too horrible for him to talk about. Maybe he was, felt guilty about it or something. Maybe that feeling of impending doom is something you'd rather forget. Maybe it becomes woven into your identity. But sometimes you're asked to remember in detail countless times for the sake of a story or for the sake of litigation. On our recent trip to New York, we visited our friend Laura Gibson. We talked about a narrow escape that she had from an abrupt end. So there's two little memorials there. Wow. Yeah. Um, do you know what the explosion was caused by? I do. Um, we had a really greedy landlord, unfortunately, um, who wanted to make some money faster and so took um, the gas line from our building and siphoned it over in a really sketchy way to the next building over because they were so impatient and they wanted to make money so quickly. Um, it was the afternoon and I was working on school stuff and I just felt it, the explosion underneath me. I was on the fifth floor. I still can feel it in my, like I have the like body memory of it. Like I remember so clearly how it felt, but I immediately knew that I needed to run and I had no idea what had happened. And I, part of my brain thought this might be silly that I'm running, but my body was just in escape mode anyways. So I went through the hall in the hallway. I was on the fifth floor. I didn't grab my ID or money or anything. I just, um, I had my phone in my hand and that's all that I had. So I ran down and the hallway was already just like powdery, hazing. And I ran down and I just remember like looking out and the street was starting to be smoky. So I just kind of ran out and then there's people running this way towards Bowery and then there were also people running towards the fire with their cameras to like videotape it, which I, my brain couldn't process that because I was in this whole other universe, <laughs> I guess. And so I went into like a hair salon over there because I just really didn't know who to talk to or where to go or what to do. And it was just happening so fast. <laughs> Laura didn't have any clothes or money, wallet, no ID, just her phone. So she called her mom. And her mom said that it was on the news. It had been a gas explosion. After Laura got off the phone, a stranger approached her. I know you're going to need money. Here's $40. Um, this is all I have, and you're going to need it. So, um, which was amazing. Like, immediate, who, who was that? I don't know, a stranger. Yeah, so it's immediate kindness from strangers. I was scared to be alone the first few days, and so I got a hotel room, but then ended up not using it the first few days because I was just staying with different friends. And I still didn't have ID, so the first job that week was just to kind of rebuild my identification and rebuild, you know, who I am. Well, so, so for context, we're standing in the East Village in New York. Usually this is a bustling area, and there are businesses every 25 feet or so, some sometimes more dense than that. But there's this big empty lot with two tiny makeshift memorials in the middle of it. Do you know who those two memorials are for? Yeah, so the two young men died in the fire. Um, one was a busboy, an immigrant working in um, the sushi restaurant where the explosion happened. And then 
the other was a young man in his 20s on a date. Um, okay. And this, how long ago was this? Almost a year ago now. It's it wasn't Mar- even a year. Okay. March 26th. One year ago? Wow. Wow. So that March oh, 26th? March 26th? That's but our March birthday. March 26th was the day that it happened. And you probably won't forget that. Last year. No. Which means yeah. that's when we turned six. Yep. Wow. We were having a big birthday party, and this happened to Laura. Did you feel like this was the closest call you've ever had? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess who knows how many close calls we have all the, all the time. But, um, I mean, this was the one that was very... I could see the potential for my own loss of life. And, and it reminds you, you know, it could go any, any way at any time I could have been... Um, I could have been in the shower. I could have like been uh, taking a nap. You know, as I my body's like doing this running for me <laughs> down the stairs, and I did really think about like, all right, this might be it. This might be it. This might be it. I just was kind of, is this a good idea to run down the stairs and onto the street? But I did have that running through my mind, like, okay, this might be it. Just keep going. It's, it's been good. <laughs> if it's been nice. Lucky up until the point, you know, not just lucky in getting out of the building, but lucky up until that. In life. Point. Yeah. Wow. You know how long your lifetime is? I'll start counting now. No. <laughs> um, like, most people live to be 86 or something. Mm-hmm. I wish we could live forever. Really? I don't know. Something about having a brief moment on this world and in this body. Something about just having this one life makes it more special. Why? Well, to me, it means that you need to make the most of every day. And you need to think a lot. You don't get to just keep screwing around and making tons and tons of mistakes. Or maybe you do. I mean, maybe that's the beauty of it, too, is it doesn't have to be perfect. You just... uh, in the gym, there was, um, there was a sign that says life is all about making mistakes and learning from them. Yep. But eventually you run out of time, and then you die. I'm sad to say. And how much years until you're going to die? I hope to live 40 more years. I hope you live 46 more years. That'd be a good age. Okay, so we've talked a lot about how the world might end. Um, And what about beginnings? I think the beginning is better because you you have all those days. But once you turn... Like two, you're like. I'm already on the track. I'm gonna have to be already on the track. I'm gonna gonna have to spend these days more carefully. I'm gonna be an accountant. Hmm. Um, We do. We definitely celebrate beginnings more than we celebrate endings, and we celebrate those beginnings every year. What's the point of these celebrations? Who are they for? Are they are they for the person having the birthday, or are they for the parents of that person, or the friends of that person? So like celebrating you turning seven is a lot more exciting for me than celebrating me turning 48. Did you notice that? Yeah, because you're much older than me and your end is going to come sooner. Well, it is, but um, (laughs) it's still more fun to celebrate birthdays for somebody else. Yeah, it is. We asked our friend Courtney Hommeister to weigh in. She's an author, comedian, filmmaker, 
and her birthday, oddly enough, is on Christmas Eve, which has given her a chance to reflect on it quite a bit. I think birthdays are weird because they change so much from when you're a kid to when you grow up. Like, when you're a kid, it's just this insane day where it just gets to be all about you and you're so excited, you know, because you get to get older and you're getting closer to becoming an adult and and you think that that's going to be so fun, which we won't talk about how wrong that is. But I think as you get older and your life gets more complicated and you have more regrets, birthdays become this, this marker, you know, it's they become this thing that kind of forces you to take stock and look at what's different from one year to the next. Like, what did I accomplish? And was this the same as the past 10 years? And and what am I doing with my life? I realized a few years ago, you know, I'm in my 40s and I had a hard time with a lot of birthdays. And I started to notice that the people who were lamenting getting older, including me, were people who were dissatisfied with their lives, you know, in one way or another, not every way. But, you know, I would think things like, how am I still single at 45 years old? You know, which is scary for a feminist to say, but it was a bummer for me. And um, and why haven't I finished my book? And and why do I still have the same job that I said I was going to leave? And um, it's like I it's like I felt like I was behind. And behind who? I don't know, but I was just behind. But when I'm happy, or I'm accomplishing what I want to accomplish, or I'm being loved well and loved often, I'm happy to have another year of that under my belt and and I'm not worried. So I think, you know, if you're one of those people who's lamenting having another birthday, you should look at your life and, and just ask yourself what you need to change so you won't regret another year passing. Sometimes I just want to eat the damn birthday cake, and I don't want to get too philosophical on a birthday, but it's an overwhelming feeling. Have you run into that yet as a seven-year-old? Um... <laughs> no. For you, it's just kind of have a good time. Party yeah. on, right? Party on. Yeah, party on. Let's well, set it up. What? You can cut that part off. Today's my 40th birthday. Um, I had really just would have been fine spending the day just kind of being alone on my birthday or treating it as any other day because I never feel different. People put other expectations or because 40 is a big milestone to everyone, but I haven't like haven't felt different since I was 34. 34, I felt kind of grown up, and now I just see it as everyone expects me to feel a certain way or say something. We weren't spoiled as children, but our birthdays were always very special to my parents for us. And so we always had, like, fun parties and people getting together. And it was a big deal for my parents that we, as we got older. But I'm the oldest, and so my mother was always very wistful on those days that her baby kept achieving these different sort of ages. When I was 13, it was a big deal. When I was 21, it was a big deal. My father today was, was misty. As I saw him, as his his oldest son turned forty, and when I have you know friends with young children on their birthdays, I always sort of feel like I want to wish them a happy birthday because you know they created this this thing that is having a birthday. It's as much their birthday as the kid. 
it's nice to get together and see your friends and get messages all day from people saying that they love you and happy birthday. It's it's it, that's I like that. That's nice. That's a nice byproduct of it. I never put expectations on them, so I can never be. I don't think disappointed. Jason Rouse, what was your favorite birthday cake? Favorite birthday cake? Yeah, it was the uh, Bert and Ernie cake that my mom made when I was seven or eight. I'll never forget it. It was amazing. It was a large kind of flat cake, and it had a picture of Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street on it, and it had my name on it. And I remember just being blown away because I knew she made it, and it was, like, perfect. Why do you think birthdays are special? Have you turning a year older and it's... Um... Almost the one day of the year you get cake. Cake. But why cake? Why Why all this special stuff? Because you're turning a year older. You're turning a year older to be a grown-up. Because mm -hmm. um, you have more responsibilities. You get more responsible. And this is a good thing? Yes. That way your mom or dad doesn't have to do all the work for you. Well, I guess being self-reliant is good, right? But I want to tell you guys some news. It's a little bit sad, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. And that's that you don't get to go backwards. We know. I know. But we've got a ton of years till we die. Oh, and boys die sooner than girls. That, that tends to be the case. <laughs> you said you have a ton of years until you die. How many days do you think that is? That's a pretty good guess. Grandpa says 30,000, 25,000, 30 if you're lucky. Why not 60,000? Um, well, 60,000 would be like 170 years, something like that. Maybe 165. So if you look at life that way, that's not that many days. You've been alive, you've been alive for six years, which is about 2,200 days, like 2,200 days. You're a tenth of the way through your life. That's one tenth. That's ten percent. Ah! I know. It's a big, big chunk. You've had a, you've had a good, but. I have ninety more percent to go. Yep. On birthdays, I think about valuing the life that I've led so far, and trying to make the most out of the life that I have left to lead. And what's going to happen? And yeah, what's going to happen after I die, and what's going to happen, and there's all different ways that they talk about the world ending. I wonder when Dooley dies, he's going to turn into something else. You mean reincarnation? Yeah, like turn into a different animal. I personally don't believe in reincarnation, but a lot of cultures do. So I've got this idea in my head, and I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, that people who are adopted have kind of a special insight into birthdays and what they mean and why we celebrate them, where they come from. Uh, at least they have a curiosity that's led them to think about it quite a bit. We've talked to quite a few adoptees for Rome School, especially because of our episode about the Vietnam baby lift. By the way, we'll have a follow-up to that episode in just a few weeks. But in the meantime, to talk about birthdays, we wanted to talk to Jeff Pearson, the adoptee that I know the best. Like me, he grew up an only child. He's 48 years old, like me. But his life started off entirely different than mine. Here's his story. So girls, do you want to start? Okay, Dana wants to start. 
Okay, Dana. Did you ever meet your mom and dad? You mean because I'm adopted? Yeah. No, I never have. I never met my mom and dad. I, um, you know, my mom who adopted me, who I consider my mom because she raised me, has been after me for years to try to, to locate my natural parents. But um, I've never been that terribly interested in finding them, to be quite honest. I was born in 1967 in the winter of love in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury. You know, just before the summer of love, obviously. So for you Rome School listeners, Jeff Pearson is a musical partner of mine for 26 years now. I met him in a coffee house in San Francisco, and he was a native San Franciscan, born there at the height of the psychedelic movement. Now, we formed a band, traveled together for 12 years or so, and when we took a break, he was hired by the Grateful Dead. And in that capacity, he toured as their background singer with the Further Festival for five years or so, playing in stadiums with the world's most famous hippies. It just always felt to me like <laughs> one of the reasons I might have, might have been drawn to that could be because I saw them prenatally when I was in my mother's womb playing on 8th Street. I told Bob Weir that story early on in Further, and he, of course, he took one look at me and said, he's like, well, I, it, it clearly isn't me. He said, if anybody around here is your dad, it was probably Garcia. <laughs> Um, I don't have a lot of information on my natural parents. They were both students in San Francisco. My natural father was apparently studying piano. And the only other thing I know is that my natural mother was Native American. Were you, um, did you have a birthday on the day you were adopted or not? No, I did not. Um, however... Every day that day comes around, my mom calls me without fail, and she has my entire life, and calls to tell me, today's the day we adopted you, and it's, that was the happiest day in my life, and it still is. I have such wonderful parents. You know, that's probably the reason why I've never been that interested in finding my birth parents. You know, I'm, I'm pretty content with, with who, I, who I got stuck with. <laughs> My dad is always telling me how you have about, I think the number is 30,000 days to play with in your life. Oh, wow, is that right? Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Which seems like a very finite number. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> You're somewhere between half and two-thirds of the way through your 30,000 days. What are you going to do with your last 10,000 days? Well, hopefully I'm going to be happy. Um I don't necessarily need to have fun or do crazy stuff. I feel like I've had a pretty good run already. Um, some of the, the, the things I've got to do through music have been spectacular, and I've, I've done things I honestly never really ever thought I'd get to do. So I, I would just like to be content, which, you know, to be quite honest, up until... Oh, God, the last couple years, it's, you know, that's something that I just never really felt. And I don't know if it's just that's my personality, but I just feel like I should have done that. And I should have took a left at Albuquerque and, you know, it just all those things. And I, I would like, 
I would like for those things to go away. I'm not sure if they will, but that, that's what I would like. Jeff has his 50th birthday planned, and uh, I will definitely be there. I was there for his 40th and his 30th. I asked him why the big deal with birthdays, looking ahead, looking backward? Well, I think everybody has a pretty good idea about what life can be like and how hard it is to get through another year. I mean, the, the everyday, constant everyday struggles that we all go through, you know, whether, you know, losing a job or your car breaks down or, you know, you, you're late on bills. I mean, it's a stressful existence that we tend to lead. One day a year when you can celebrate, hey, I crawled through that quagmire and I made it another year, <laughs> you know, that's something to celebrate. It's a very odd thing to go through your entire life without knowing what nationality you are. In kindergarten and other classes, you know, you do you like, where am I from and all that stuff. And I was never able to participate in that. And it kind of used to stick in my craw as a kid and make me feel bad. I was watching a show on PBS with this professor who gets stars and famous athletes and does DNA tests on them. And they're always amazed. Um, so I decided that would be something I could do because I've always just assumed I was American Indian from the way I look. And then after doing the DNA test, of course, I'm Indian and I'm Native American, but not in North America. I'm Native American in South America. So, it, you know, it turned out to be something completely different. And then I'm English and Irish, which I never, ever thought I was because I'm so dark complected. And having done that, it did add a kind of piece to the puzzle and, and a piece in the way I felt about it, uh, uh, finally figuring out at least a little chunk of who I was. Birthdays uh, and end of days. Why do you think we like to talk about those two parts of life so much, the beginning and the ending? When you're born, anything could happen to you, right? And you have all your days left. Like on the day you're born, you have all those days to play with. You're like, okay, I have this many days. I'm going to do this on that day, this on that day, this on that. Really? Is that how you're thinking when you're first born? No. How are you thinking when you're first born? I'm thinking I want this to be the best day of my life. Really? Why? Because it's my first day. Your options are endless. You can go any direction that you want. There's no unfinished projects. You don't have to finish the projects and then put them away. You just say, I'm going to start this project. Okay, and what about the end? Isn't it kind of the same? You ever heard of something called a bucket list? Bucket list is like this, this bucket of ideas that you have, that you haven't done yet, but when you find out that you're going to die, you go try to do all these things. It's like your end, your last chapter. You get to... Last chapter of the book. Of your life. And your book closes. Yep. So that last chapter is usually pretty exciting. And then your, and then your kid reopens the book and starts a new story. Good point. I think the reason we think so much about birthdays and end of days, death, is because those are the times when your life has the ultimate options. You can do anything you want. Like Vern, you said it the best. You try to live your life like... Like it's your first day. Fun and artistic. And... Oh, artistic. What would you do if today was your very last day, if you found out? <laughs> what would you do? I would scream. And after that? <laughs> I 
would do the stuff that I always wanted to do in my bucket list. Now, Dana, what about you? Try to find a place that's nothing but sushi. Nothing but sushi? Nothing. Okay, what about you? I want to go to Yosemite again. Oh, yeah, let's go back there. For our next birthday, can we go to Yosemite? Birthday is as good a time as any to go to Yosemite. Hey, thanks for listening to our show. This is Rome Schooled. If you listen for this long, that means you like the show. So drop us a line. Become our friend. You can reach me at jim at romeschooled.com. Go to our website, and you'll see a beautiful slideshow for each episode that's put together by Lydia Ritchie, my co-producer. Thank you so much to the guests who sat down with my daughters and I, and especially to Dana and Vern, who are now seven, and who inspired the questions, topics, and came along for the ride. Rome Schooled is written and produced by me, Jim Brunberg, with invaluable production assistance, concept, and website development by Lydia Ritchie. Ben Landsberg helped me write and record all the music. Stay in touch, and we'll see you out there on the Rome.